Well, good morning. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 4. Well, it's my pleasure to be here with you today. Um, I'm also glad that I can be here with my wife, Jenna, who's back from her business trip. I picked her up from the airport on Friday. Um, It's been a while since I've flown. I can't remember if Cleveland Hopkins has any of those moving walkways. Okay, it's too small for that. Okay, yeah. Um, Well, I mean, you know, these walkways, you're late for a plane or you're you're tired or you're like me and you just like to go for a joyride (laughs) to the annoyance of the business person behind you who is late for his flight. (laughs) You know, sometimes life feels like you're on the walkway moving at a leisurely 1.4 miles an hour. But then sometimes it seems like the walkway stops. And then it feels like it starts moving backwards. And then the incline increases. And before you know it, you feel like you're running as fast as you can on this giant treadmill at a 45 degree angle, just trying not to fall off. What do we do when life starts to feel like a stress test? What do we do when trials come? Well, one person who was no stranger to trials was the Apostle Peter. And next week, Steve will be starting a sermon series on 1 Peter. And in preparation for that, today we're going to be looking at a passage that introduces us to Peter in the book of Acts. Acts was written by a medical doctor named Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so far in Acts, we've seen the risen Christ ascend into heaven. We've also seen the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost. And then in Acts 3, Peter and John are walking into the temple where they come across a beggar. And Peter looks at the man and says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man leaps up immediately. And Peter uses this miracle as a springboard to explain and preach the gospel to the crowd. Well, let's pick up the text in chapter 4, verse 1. And if you're using a church Bible, you can find it on page 911. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there is a lot going on in this text. A miracle, mass conversions, unjust imprisonment, a showdown with the authorities. It's the sort of thing that Hollywood would want to make a movie out of, right? (laughs) We could imagine the Acts 4 movie being about the power of miracles or the power of faith, whatever that faith is, or maybe the courage of a few good men. Well, what this text is really all about is the power of God to glorify himself and his son by establishing his church on the earth. And the main power God uses to do that is the gospel. The gospel in the mouths of common people who by, our, who by grace are bold to testify, even in the face of persecution. Well, we'll work through this text in four sections, focusing on its four major events. First, we'll see a miraculous sign explained. Next, we'll see the arrest. Then we'll see Peter and John's hearing before the council. And then we'll see the aftermath of that hearing. And as we go, I want us to see that Peter's able to handle these trials, first, because of where his treasure is, second, because of where he's put his trust, and third, because he knows who has He knows who has true authority. Okay, so treasure, trust, and true authority. So first, the healing. Imagine you go home and you're reading The Plain Dealer, and uh, you're reading an article about a man in his 40s with a congenital ankle disorder. So this man, he goes to university hospitals, and after reconstructive surgery and lots of physical therapy, The article says that the man is finally able to take his first steps and that the doctor thinks that pretty soon he'll even be able to do a 5K. Would you be surprised at that article? I don't think I would. I mean, we know what what medicine can do these days. But imagine that same man goes to UH for his initial consult. And as soon as the doctor enters the room, the man leaps up like a gazelle dances around, and leaves that day with a clean bill of health. Would you believe that? Well, at the very least, you'd want to know, how is that possible? I mean, people just don't instantly overcome congenital disorders. That's right. 
And you know, nobody knew that better than Dr. Luke, the person who wrote this text. You know, people in the first century were smart. They knew what medicine in their day could achieve and what it could not achieve. Dr. Luke knows there's no medical explanation for this recovery, but he does give us an explanation. He makes it very clear in Acts 3 that this particular man was healed by nothing less than by Jesus and by faith in his name. Now, I understand that in today's secular age, not everybody believes in miracles. But if you're tempted to get off the boat at this point on this issue, you know, there's actually a bigger question facing you. The question isn't, do you believe in miracles? It's, do you believe in God? Do you believe in a sovereign God who can work in his creation however he chooses? You see, if God is in the heavens and he does what he wants, the existence of miracles should not surprise us. Now, there might be a lot more we want to know about miracles, but at this point, we really need to focus on what the text focuses on. And what Luke emphasizes for us, first, that this man was healed by the name of Jesus, yes, but also, and this is there in verse 22, that this healing was a sign, a sign. If you remember the 1990s, there was a song, I think it was by Ace of Bass, called, yeah, I Saw the Sign. It opened up my eyes, I saw the sign. Well, the lame man being healed is a sign. It's a sign that's supposed to open up our eyes to something greater. Now, that might surprise us, because in our culture, people so often tend to view good health as an end in and of itself, as an ultimate good. But here's the thing. This man's physical condition, his hopeless physical condition, is actually a dim picture of an even more hopeless spiritual condition that he was born with and that I was born with and that you were born with. It seems that this man's ankles were somehow twisted or bent from birth. Friends, you and I were born with twisted hearts, bent towards sin. And at the end of time, we're gonna to have to stand before a holy God and give account for every twisted, bent word we've ever said. And who's gonna be able to stand in that holy place? Well, Psalm 24 tells us, it's the one with clean hands and a pure heart. Friends, if you think that God is not gonna to look too closely at your heart, do you really think that the one who created the retina and the optic nerve is gonna be blind to the sin in our hearts? You see, there's only one place to get the kind of purity you need to stand before God. And the good news is, the only man who has it, Jesus, is both willing and authorized to give it to you. Because Jesus, the perfect son of God, took the fall for sin so that in him we can stand before God unashamed. Amen. You see how this healing points to the cross? This lame man takes his first steps because Jesus became unable to walk under the weight of his own cross. The man's ankles were made strong because Jesus' feet were pierced. But it's not just physical, right? What does Isaiah 53 say? That the Messiah would be pierced for our sicknesses? No. 
for our transgressions, crushed for not our infirmities, but for our iniquities. So you see, the greatest benefit the lame man received, received that day, it was not that he could now stand. It's that he got to hear Peter explain how if he put his faith in Christ, one day he'd be able to stand before God. Now, friends, I know some of us here have major health concerns. Please, please don't think I'm indifferent to that. I am not. More than that, Jesus is not indifferent to those of us who are suffering. He, of all people, knows about suffering. But can I just say, in the first instance, that if the main thing that you would want from Jesus is physical healing, you'll actually have very little use for Jesus. Not because he can't heal you. He can. He's the great physician. But it's because he wants so much more for you than just health and happiness in this life. He wants your health and happiness to be in him forever. You see, we are witnesses to the greatest miracle the world's ever known. Because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a sign. It's a sign that opens up our eyes to to something greater, to a sure and living hope beyond any pain we might feel in this world. And because he lives, we too will live if we trust in him. In a world that goes on forever without broken bones or cancer or sin or death. So Peter and John were preaching to the people, explaining this miraculous sign. Now it's at this point that the apostles are arrested by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees, these powerful religious officials. These people have sway over the people. Some of them even rub shoulders with the Romans. And it says they're greatly annoyed because Peter and John were teaching about the resurrection. Now, I don't want us to miss the drama of this scene. Okay, think about it. We're in Jerusalem. It's getting dark. And the religious officials, they make a questionable arrest on the grounds of preaching the resurrection. Are you getting a sense of deja vu? Because we've seen this nighttime scene before. The last time it happened, Jesus was handed over to die. Is that going to be what happens to Peter and John, too? You know, sometimes it takes a dramatic situation to reveal where our treasure really lies. Let me ask you, where is your treasure? You know, we can learn a lot here from the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. We should be asking, why are they so annoyed? Well, maybe it's because they feel threatened. Remember how Jesus said that the scribes and the Pharisees were greedy and lovers of money? You see, these religious officials, they have special permission from Rome to operate the Jewish religion with a certain degree of autonomy. And some of these men have become quite wealthy from this arrangement. But what happens if those crowds start to get riled up with all this resurrection talk? What if Rome comes in, shuts the temple down, and the temple officials lose their social standing They lose the nation of Israel. They lose their money. Friends, do you want to know where your treasure is? 
here's a question to ask yourself. What annoys you? Because, you see, we tend to be annoyed when something we really treasure gets threatened. So just an example, if you're watching the news and you find yourself not just a little annoyed, but greatly annoyed at that political candidate from that other party, what does that say about where your treasure lies? Or maybe when that new stock that you just invested in takes a slight dip. Now, we need to be responsible citizens and good stewards, yes, of course. But you see, there's a fine line between those things and being greatly annoyed. Friends, if we have a death grip on our political vision for America, or if we're devastated at the prospect of losing money, I have to ask, are we so far away from these priests and Sadducees? You see, they were storing up worldly treasure in a worldly kingdom, and they're willing to arrest anyone who gets in their way. Now, speaking of the arrest, I just want you to notice how short this account is in verse 3. It says, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, period. You know, if this were the Acts 4 movie, the arrest and the night in custody would take at least half an hour, right? (laughs) So why does Luke give us so little detail? Is it because he's indifferent to the apostles' hardship? Is Luke saying that when we experience persecution, we're just supposed to grin and bear it like we're Stoics? Well, no. You know, I wonder if Luke had read Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18, which says that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. You see, for Peter and John, the present sufferings of their arrest were not worth comparing with this kingdom, this unshakable kingdom that they see growing before their very eyes. Look at verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. They started out with 120 Christians at the ascension, like a mustard seed. And then at Pentecost, 3,000 more. And now it's 5,000 men, not including women and children. You see, there is the real drama of this text, not the arrest. Jesus building his church. And how did the church grow? Was it because people saw miracles being done? Look again at the text. Verse 4. Because because many of those who had heard the word believed. They heard the gospel. The power of God for salvation to all who believe. Friends, the day we give up on the gospel is the day we give up on the power of God. Because faith comes by hearing the word of God not by osmosis. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Will we tell our friends about this power of God? Well, that's the arrest. Now we have the hearing. We've already seen the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. Now we really get the full-on who's who of Jewish religious power. We see the, the rulers, the elders, and the high priestly family, including Annas and Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas? He's the one who back in John said uh, it would be better for one man, Jesus, to die instead of the whole nation of Israel to perish. And of course he spoke better than he knew. 
was that same Caiaphas and all his backers lined up against two fishermen. Steve and I would have a better chance trying to score a touchdown against the Kansas City Chiefs defense. When the obstacles seem insurmountable, where is your trust? That's the question. Where is your trust? Are Peter and John going to be intimidated by Annas and Caiaphas and the high priestly family? Or are they going to put their trust in the great high priest whose name is love? Now, remember the last time Peter was on the hot seat and someone asked him, aren't you his disciple? You remember three times, I tell you, I don't know the man. Well, look, in verse seven, Peter gets almost the same question. By what power or what name did you do this? Well, what's Peter going to do? Is he going to deny Jesus a fourth time? Or is he maybe going to call down 12 legions of angels like Jesus said he could have done? No. Peter does something more dramatic than any of that. Peter opens his mouth and he preaches the gospel to the very same people who just threw him in prison. Friends, you will never love your enemies unless you know how much you yourself have been forgiven. Forgiving feels hard. Yes, it is. That's why you need the power of the man on the cross who cries out, Father, forgive. And it's the same Jesus who helps us when it comes to evangelism, right? Remember we read earlier, Jesus told Peter and the disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, not if they bring you, when, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's exactly what we see happening here in Acts 4. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, so the Holy Spirit will teach us what we're supposed to say in that hour. Aren't we also supposed to be prepared to give an answer for the reason for our hope? Well, yes. That's, uh, it's 1 Peter 3. Remember, I think one way we can reconcile this, one of the things Jesus said that the Holy Spirit does is he reminds us of everything that Jesus taught. He reminds us. Now, reminding us assumes that we're already familiar with what Jesus taught. And I can't explain exactly how the Spirit moves, but I can say that when Peter answers the council, we see the response of a man who has been steeped in the words of Jesus. Take a look at me with verse 11. Peter quotes Psalm 18 that we read earlier. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus applied those words to himself just a few days before the crucifixion. Don't you think Peter would have had a chance to meditate on those words when he saw the risen Christ rejected by men, but now become the cornerstone of God's kingdom? Or what about verse 12? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Can you hear the echoes there of the upper room? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, it takes boldness to affirm that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. So where does Peter, really this former coward, where does Peter get this boldness? 
And what's more, where can you and I get this boldness? Well, he gets it from Jesus, right? It says Peter and John were common, uneducated men. They had not been to seminary. But verse 13, they had been with Jesus. Now, we haven't been physically in the presence of Jesus, right? But remember what Jesus tells Thomas after the resurrection? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, if you want to be a bold, effective witness for Jesus Christ, spend time with him. A lot of time. Meditate on his words and talk about them in the car with your children and talk about them when you lie down and when you get up. It doesn't matter if you're in fifth grade or if you dropped out of high school or if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a PhD. Spend time with Jesus in his word and pray for boldness to share the gospel and trust the spirit as you look for openings and even make openings to share the gospel. You know, some of us are bold by nature or we're married to people who are bold by nature or we work with people who are bold by nature. The boldness of Acts 4 is not the same thing as being an extrovert, as being born with a feisty personality and you're not afraid to speak your mind. It's actually a spiritual boldness that we only get from being in the presence of Jesus. Now, this is great news for you if you're an introvert, right? If you feel a little timid about sharing the gospel, this is great news. But this is also great news for you if you're an extrovert, if you're, if you're bold by nature. Because think, Peter was bold by nature. But when he was relying on his old, own natural boldness, think what happens the night before Jesus is betrayed. Working out of his own boldness, he denies Jesus three times. No. You see, we need a boldness from God. And we have to pray for it. We have to. Ephesians 6, Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him that words might be given to him to declare the gospel boldly. And my Christian friends, if Paul has to pray for this boldness for the gospel, you and I need to as well. Can I share with you a story about God's kindness? About a month ago, I was praying for boldness like this because by nature, I do not have this boldness. And three days later, there was a knock at the door a maintenance man come to fix something in our apartment. And I ask him, uh, how are you doing? He says, oh, I'm doing good. Uh, hanging in there as long as the Lord allows. Well, there's your open door, right? <laughs> oh, you, you mentioned the Lord. Would you say that you're a Christian, right? And fasten your safety belt because you don't exactly know what's going to happen, right? <laughs> and as our conversation unfolded, I realized that this man uh, believed that we're saved by our good deeds. What am I going to say to him? Well, the night before, I was reading in Luke about the crucifixion and the thieves on either side of Jesus and about how the one thief, you know, I'm thinking about it, meditating, thinking, oh, this man didn't have time to do any good works. All he did was believe in that day he was with Jesus in paradise, right? What was fresh on my mind, right? So I told, I told this man about the thief on the cross, now, I don't want to draw attention to myself, but my point here is that you don't need a photographic memory of the Bible 
to share the gospel. Just spend time in God's word and pray for boldness. And when the moment comes, trust God that he will keep his promise for the Holy Spirit to give you the words you need. Well, that's the hearing. Let's move on now to the aftermath. Well, the council is left speechless. So what do they do? Well, they do what any good sports team does when they look across the line of scrimmage, see they're outmatched. They call timeout and they huddle up, right? (laughs) And oh, they're so used to doing this, aren't they? Remember when they asked Jesus about his authority and then Jesus asked them a question about John's baptism, where it came from? And then they call timeout and huddle up and say, well, if we say it came from heaven, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him? If we say it came from man, then the crowd might stone us because they take John to be a prophet. So they come out of the huddle and punt and say, we don't know. Um, Almost the same thing happens here. They huddle up and they say, what are we going to do? Here's Peter speaking with that same authority that Jesus spoke with. And the lame man standing right there. We can't deny that a sign has happened. Friends, if you can't deny something, what is the only rational thing to do? Accept it. If you consider yourself a rational person and you see the evidence of an empty tomb, you can bend over backwards trying to come up with all kinds of alternate explanations. But if at the end of the day, the most plausible explanation is Jesus actually did rise again from the dead, then why fight it? Don't let anyone ever tell you that your Christian faith is a leap into the dark. Alas, the council has become hardened, and the best they can do is warn them, don't preach anymore in that name. Now, just a quick note here on verse 19. When the apostles say, judge for yourselves whether we should obey you or God, they are not giving Christians blanket permission to disobey the government. Okay, Both Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 both explicitly say that we're supposed to be subject to authority. So we shouldn't be looking for loopholes. We must be committed to obey the authorities up until the point that they're in irreconcilable conflict with God's word, but not before. And that's what we see happening here. Now, the specifics of civil disobedience aside, the big question here is, who has true authority? Who has true authority? There are two competitors in Acts 4, and you know they're the same competitors today. You see, the world and its pundits, they'll say things like, you know, you can, it's okay, you can talk about your experience with Jesus, that's fine, but don't you dare say that no one comes to the Father except through him. Have you ever been talking with someone maybe about faith and they say something like, uh, well, everyone's got to find their own path to God. We just need to respect everyone's path. And it sounds so humble, doesn't it? So egalitarian and tolerant. But if you look deeper, it's actually an absolute totalizing statement. Do you see the deception? See, when your friend says that, they're painting a picture of a temple made up of stones of all the world's religions, and they want you to think that all those stones are equal and there's no cornerstone to the temple. But here's the catch. There is a cornerstone. The cornerstone is them. 
The cornerstone is basically Western secularism. The greatest trick secularism has ever pulled is to convince people that secularism isn't a worldview, it's just the way things are. When secularism is absolutely a religious worldview. Now, I'm not trying to fire you up and make you greatly annoyed. (laughs) But when someone affirms that all paths lead to God, I want you to see two things. First, that claim is no less exclusive than you saying Jesus is Lord, so don't be intimidated. And second, when someone says all paths lead to God, friends, can you see that that person is held in bondage by the evil one? Remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's why when our secular friends say things like, all paths lead to God, we shouldn't be annoyed, and we shouldn't be guilted into silence. No, we should start planning a jailbreak, a strategic jailbreak. Because if Jesus is not the one and only cornerstone of that person's life, they will be crushed and broken to pieces. And I know that's so deeply unpopular. But what other rock is going to stand firm when God comes to judge the world? You see, the reason there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved is because no one else can save. We sang earlier, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Friends, all paths lead to God is a sweet, sweet frame. But no. Holy, lean, on Jesus' name. Jesus to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Well, our time is almost gone, but in closing, I want us to take a bird's eye view of this passage, and I want us to focus on two groups of people and see how each group develops over the course of the passage. One group of people, they start out as being greatly annoyed And then from being greatly annoyed, they become further hardened as they hear the gospel and reject it. And then there's a second group of people who start out believing the gospel in verse 4. And then they continue on. And in verse 21, they're still praising God. You see, there are only two trajectories in life. One trajectory starts in unbelief and moves towards irreversible hardness of heart. The other trajectory starts with believing the gospel and moves eventually towards unceasing, unending praise around the throne in heaven. So let me ask you, which trajectory are you on? And more than that, what makes the difference for which trajectory you're on? In Acts 4, everyone there in the temple, they all had the same ethnic background. They all heard the same gospel preached, but some believe and praise God while others disbelieve and are hardened. So what makes the difference? Well, what made the difference for someone like Johnny Erickson Tata? Do you know her story? In 1967, at the age of 17, she was in a diving accident that leaves her paralyzed and a quadriplegic. 55 years ago. Now, right now, she could be 55 years deep into bitterness and hard-heartedness. But if you know her story, instead, by all appearances, she's now praising God, 
through the books she writes about Jesus and through her disability ministry. Friends, what's the only thing that can move you from hard-heartedness to true praise of the living God? Well, it's God. It's always, only, ever God. When he gives you eyes to see Jesus' authority and faith to trust in him alone. And when you'll do, you'll find that Jesus is the only treasure that lasts, the only firm ground. Everything else is quicksand. Can I ask you, are you sinking down in the sands of annoyance, hard-heartedness, disbelief? When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, what's my only hope? When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Can you say that? If you can, praise God. Now soak up his word and ask him for boldness. You see, trials and persecutions will come. But if God did not spare the feet of his own son so that you could stand before him in Christ, how much more will he give the good gift of boldness to his children who ask him for his namesake? Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you because we know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. So Father, we pray, give us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, whether it's for the first time today or for the 10,000th time. We pray that you would cause us to hunger for your word. And we also pray, give us boldness to proclaim the gospel boldly as we ought to do. In the name of Jesus and for his sake we pray, amen. Amen.